Lot Matter podcast, another unannounced live stream, and uh, it's the end of a long day for me. Uh, I've been working on a lot of stuff, man. Um, it's it's like having putting different hats on during the course of the day. Some of you do that, uh, and it's a blessing to be able to work from home sometimes because I can do that a little more flexibly. But uh, I, I've sucked in a bunch of sawdust earlier. I was sanding some things upstairs. I'm installing this door, and Let's just say in my house, it's built in 1920. It's a farmhouse. Nothing's even. So it, like things that should take you half an hour end up taking you three or four or five hours, depending. So um, I was just doing that. But uh, working through some stuff for the podcast as well, I started writing a piece this morning on Christian nationalism and uh, a take that I don't think, at least I haven't seen anyone else. Uh, getting at which well I won't tell you what it is I don't want to give it away someone's gonna I don't want someone else to (laughs) steal my thunder on it so uh, that will be uh, released Lord willing later this week I'm probably going to submit it to the guys at American Reformer see if they want to carry it I don't know we'll see what I do (laughs) but uh, uh, either way you'll be hearing about it on this podcast for sure so um, anyway lots going on I had a good weekend I hope you had a good weekend I I still got like a a cold or something but um, it was good. Like it, we had temperatures last week in the seventies, if you can believe it, almost every day. And now this week it feels like November, but last week it felt like the summer. It was weird, and so it was awesome. Uh, I got to go scope out some hunting land, and I let's see what else. Uh, I can't even remember now. It's everything's a blur, but I just know it was good. <laughs> and my wife and I, oh, I know. There's this really good ice cream place called Holy Cow in Red Hook, New York. And it's too far away for me to go there often. I almost never go to Red Hook. I never have a reason to, but I had a reason three times this week to go to Red Hook. Twice because there's an archery shop there and I had to get my bow worked on. So I had to drop it off, pick it up. And then the third time, because my wife said, you keep getting that holy cow ice cream every time you go up there. I want some. So we took a special trip uh, yesterday just to get her some holy cow ice cream. And uh, it is good. And it's the reason they call it holy cow is because there's Yankees paraphernalia and stuff in there and uh, I believe at least this is the story I was told is that that was what Babe Ruth said uh, all the time was holy cow and so that's what they called it but uh, I used to think it was because it's ice cream and cows but apparently not really good place so if you ever get to Red Hook New York check it out uh, anyway let's uh, let's go over some of the things we're going to do today in the podcast there's a man there's so many things and I just wrote down a bunch of stuff because I wasn't sure what I needed to cut out and what I needed to keep. But um, I was listening, I want to mention this before I forget, I was listening to a podcast, another podcast before I jumped on this, and it was A.D. Robles. And he was talking about something that I thought was like a just amazing point that I had not considered. And it was on some content that I had covered. Bart Barber uh, actually did an interview with 60 Minutes, like, what, a month and a half ago? Two months ago? Uh, But I did a whole podcast about it, and I missed something so crucial, and A.D. Robles brought it up, and he was bringing it up in the context of talking about how stories affect us, and then the stories we're told about things influence the way we we think about things, and he used evolution as an example, and he it's a laughable idea, Darwinian evolution, but yet it's treated seriously because uh, he says we've been force-fed this story so often, even if we disagree with it. We don't think that we can be part of a respectable society if we treat it with too much disdain or laugh at it too much. 
And I thought, well, that's a really good point. And it, it reminded me of something actually critical theorists say, critical race theorists in particular say that stories are so important for their narrative. In fact, that's why they guard the idea that the killing of uh, the, the death of George Floyd, the death of, of so many of, of these other uh, victims, uh, sometimes allegedly, is because of police misconduct, of racism in police departments, systemic racism in the United States. They have to guard that. And if you challenge it, they just want to destroy you. They don't want to argue with you because that particular story, that narrative is crucial for them to get their political way. Without that narrative, they don't really have anything. So stories are important. So A.D. said, Bart Barber told a story. And I, thought, I remember, I was thinking back, I'm like, what story is he talking about? He goes, Bart Barber, in the interview with Anderson Cooper, uh, I think it was Anderson Cooper, on 60 Minutes, said that the Southern Baptists, or not, not, not even Southern Baptists in particular, but Christians, actually, more broadly speaking, when they get a hold of political power, they end up persecuting everyone. And he said, well, that's a story he's telling. That's... That's the worst advertisement for Christianity you can possibly give. You're telling everyone that this religion, it's so great, you should accept that it's the truth. But once you're in power with this religion, you're just going to persecute everyone. It's, it's terrible. And isn't that a lame story? Isn't that a story that if everyone believed it, of course they're not going to, if they're Christians, going to touch political power. Of course they're going to be suspicious of it. Of course they're going to think that anyone who says we should rally for political power uh, so we can enact just laws, they, they should be looked at with some... Um, ire because they might actually bring in the nightmare that Bart Barber is worried about. And I thought, wow, that's a good point. And it reminded me of when I was at Southeastern because when I was a seminary student there in seminary, Southern Baptist Seminary, I remember thinking, man, if half the things about Christianity I hear um, that I hear in class, if they're true and, and from their blogs and just from the milieu, that just everything there, I wouldn't want to be a Christian because they give the impression Christianity is responsible for everything from the Crusades to the Holocaust to slavery to repression of women and burning witches and divine right of kings and whatever arranged marriages. It's all barbarism and it's Christianity's fault for supporting these things. And aren't you glad in the last five minutes, good old Danny Aiken and Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, we got it right. We're the biblical ones. And uh, I was studying for uh, a book, Social Justice Goes to Church, which you can get on Amazon. You can also go to worldviewconversation.com and get it. And I, it was part of the research that went into that um, I used for my thesis uh, in grad school. And it struck me that I saw the same thing coming out with evangelical leftists of the 1960s. They say the same thing. They say that they're the only, they're, they're the true Christians. They're the only ones to have rightly uh, rediscovered or conserved true Christianity. A Anabaptists tend to say this. Uh, there's just a uh, fundamentalist uh, tend to say this. And these leftist evangelicals, though, inherited this. And boy, did they inherit it because they really see themselves as so different. There's a big chasm between them and other Christians. Even if they say they believe the same doctrinal things, they will say, well, you, you, know, you don't really have the full gospel. You're not really a true Christian. You're, you're over there somewhere. We're the ones that are conserving true New Testament Christianity. So anyway, I thought it was an interesting point AD made, and I thought, wow, that's a point that I need to echo. I need to just go check out his last video. It's really good on this because it's something that I think, as, especially if you're a parent or if just you're a pastor or a teacher, it's something to consider. What stories are you telling? people who uh, are impressionable, especially uh, kids, <laughs> most especially. What are you telling them? 
what things are they going to believe? And are you self-aware of the things that you're uh, telling them? So anyway, wanted to mention that. That's a shout out for AD because I thought it was just a really good video. A um, few announcements on my end uh, before we get started. We're going to talk about Al Mohler. We're going to talk about uh, what else are we going to talk about? A bunch of stuff. TGC article. We're talking about the elections. How's everyone feeling about that? By the way, I should check this out. Uh, I, I've been looking at the updates, and I don't know if they've called it in uh, Arizona or not. I know. election. It's like election month. It's not even election day anymore. It's just so ridiculous. Um. Yeah, I mean, they're saying, I guess there's supposed to be a vote drop in Arizona, and it looks like Carrie Lake isn't going to make it, supposedly, even though, you know, it looked so promising, and polls had her way ahead, and it's just, it's weird uh, to some of you who have not, perhaps, <laughs> come to grips with 2020, but if you've come to grips with what happened in 2020, I could have told you, right? <laughs> a lot of people could have told you, this is what they're going to do. I think the question, maybe for some of you, was, is is what they're going to do going to be enough to overcome the votes that Carrie Lake got uh, for governor of Arizona? And uh, that's perhaps a question. But look, um, I can't get into it too much on YouTube, unfortunately. But just read between the lines. Do your homework. That's all I got to say. It's not, it's not a huge shock, unfortunately. What's the solution, John? What's the solution? Well, there's not an easy one, not a political uh, one that's easy, at least. All right. So... Uh, Anyway, we'll talk a little bit maybe about the election. Um, got some other stuff pulled up, some updates on Grove City College and on uh, Will McCraney's case. So lots of good stuff for you uh, today. Um, but uh, before we get to all that, though, uh, just a few announcements. Organizing a conference. I just want to let you know that we, I, I am starting to consider the possibility of organizing a conference. And I'm very aware of the fact that this could be a lot of work and I've got a lot of things I'm doing next year, a lot. So <laughs> um, I'm trying to figure out the best way strategically to get this done. But I just want to let you know, for those especially who are supporters, that I'm thinking th about this. And I had a good conversation with Judd Saul the other day and, and he's willing to do a lot of the legwork. And so we are thinking of, of doing something um, maybe in Dallas. We're thinking of central locations that people can get to. But having it wouldn't just it wouldn't be me it would be like me and 20 of my friends right it would be uh it, it would probably be a, a big or a, a big tent i guess for lack of a better term with um maybe different denominations but it would be all people who are courageous christians who are courageous who that's the idea at least the concept at this point is courageous christians and not like these knockoff courageous christians conferences you see i know there's been, I've seen them. I've seen a bunch of them, by the way. And they, they always have always have that name, Courageous Christians or uh, something like along those lines, taking a stand. And then you look at the people that are at these conferences and most of them, maybe some of them have, but most of them, they've been, they've been talking heads for a long time. And I, maybe I'm a talking head, but they, what my point is, what risks have they had to endure uh, over the last few years? What um, kinds of uh, deprivations have they suffered because of the fact that they believe in the, what the Bible teaches on ethics or something related to that? And most of them, you have to say, they, they're not. They're, they're elites on the other side, and they're, there's a poser kind of thing going on. They're posing as courageous Christians. Maybe some of them are, but it's not been tested. And I, I had this idea for a while. I really want to do something with guys who have been tested, guys who have really... Uh, gone through the ringer, been canceled, uh, who just really shown 
uh, maybe they're not part of the in crowd, but they've really shown courage and they've really moved the needle. And there's I've got so many names in my head of people that would be great for this. So anyway, just want to let you guys know that. And uh, hey, if there's uh, people out there who have uh, ideas for cancel proof venues, it's important to me. I want to, you know, venues got to be cancel proof uh, in my mind. Uh, and, and whether it's your church or a community center or something, you got the connection, then I would love to hear from you. But uh, I am looking at places, especially in the southeast. Um, so so all the way from you know, South Carolina, all the way to, to Texas, somewhere in there, and maybe as north as Tennessee. I don't know if I want to go too far, much farther north. Um, and, and part of it is I, ha I don't I go there for film things sometimes that I haven't really been there to speak all that much. And I was looking at my, I don't ever do this. I did it for the first time the other day. I was looking at my YouTube stats and most of the people who listen to the podcast are, or at least a lot of them, at least they're in those sections, they're in those States, they're in those cities, which I suspected. And, and there's a reason I think that most of my invites are in the Midwest. And I think it's because if you're in the South, especially there's churches everywhere and if you were to really take this issue head on, if you're really, especially have someone like me come uh, or, or AD or someone who's really named names and so forth, you, you are, you're risking it. You're upsetting the apple cart and you're not just doing that, but you are in danger of damaging potential relationships with other pastors in your community. That's my theory. I don't know if that's true, but I, I was trying to think what makes sense of this. And, and there's Southern Baptists everywhere down there too, but, uh, it's uh, so so. I'm thinking maybe next year doing a few smaller events. Definitely got to do a men's retreat. It was phenomenal what happened a few weeks ago. But we, I, I want to do something for everyone, and I, I think maybe a, a a central location like a kind of for next year at least would be um, optimal. So we'll see what happens. I'll keep you updated on that. And uh, it is the time of year once again for you know what I'm going to say. Everyone knows Gold River Tea. In fact, I've got my Gold River Tea in my Conversations That Matter mug right here. And I'm drinking some chamomile, herbal tea, spearmint and lavender flavor. It's really good. It actually really is, actually. I'm not just saying that. And you got to leave the bag in the tea. That's how you drink it. But you go to um, online, just go to goldriverco.com, and you can get yourself some Gold River Tea. they got a bunch of bundles. If you uh, click on their front page, uh, they'll they'll show you their Christmas Trio bundle. Gr makes a great gift, and this is a company that supports what you believe. Uh, it supports. Uh, I mean, these are these are people like us. So, pro uh, America, pro Western Civ, pro Christianity. Most importantly, against cancel culture. Uh, you can go and check out their other bundles. They got a bunch of of different kinds here, and. Uh, if you go to their seasonal, you're, you'll find um, their, their pumpkin spice and their hot cocoa. In fact, uh, I don't have um, the hot cocoa, but uh, actually, no, I think I think I have it and I'm waiting. I haven't tried it yet. That's what I'm saying. I haven't tried the hot cocoa yet, but they have a cinnamon spice hot cocoa. And I am very curious about this because I'm not a big hot chocolate guy, if you can believe it. I like mint hot chocolate. I'm weird. I know. Um, but I'm wondering if I would like cinnamon spice. But they have that, which is just an interesting uh, combination there. But go to Gold River Trading, goldriverco.com, and on the checkout, put in the promo code CONVERSATIONS to get yourself some 15% off for your order. That's goldriverco.com, and uh, don't forget CONVERSATIONS. All right, well, let's see who's streaming with us today. And we will uh, we'll keep going here and get into some of the meat of this podcast. 
as we go. Uh, wow, there's a lot of uh, 72 people streaming, and it's 7.38 p.m., so I'm assuming uh, in the next few minutes we'll probably even get some more. <laughs> Hello, Gordon Sanchez's older brother. Hmm. What makes you think I'm Gordon Sanchez's brother? That's interesting. Hmm. <laughs> um, I hope he talks about the effects of wokeism on independent fundamental Baptists. Man, I don't, I don't know where to start with that exactly. It's, uh, I know there's, there have been effects on independent fundamental Baptists, but it's a very hard thing to trace because they're independent fundamental Baptists. <laughs> That's why. You don't have a denomination making official statements about things. There, You have to go like church by church. That'd be a very difficult study. It just will be long, but you could definitely do it. Uh, you could go to some of their institutions that a lot of them will use, like a Bob Jones perhaps. And yes, I've had people communicate with me about Bob Jones and, and tell me, you know, just like everywhere else, there are places in which this, I, this ideology is creeping in. But it's not anything that's... Um, from what I've been sent, at least, it's, it's nothing that's like so specific you can really put your finger on it. And, and it doesn't seem, to me, it doesn't sound like it's pervasive, but it's there. And so I tell people, just be aware of it. Everywhere, anywhere you go, just be aware of it. Um, all right. Well, we are going to uh, jump into some things here. And we'll come back. Uh, if anyone has a question, if uh, cries of outrage, <laughs> anyone has anything to share, uh, you can put it on the live chat. And uh, I will be sure to at least try to check out what people are saying. All right. Well, uh, let's start here with uh, election stuff, shall we? It's probably the best place to start. And an article that came out before the midterms from the Gospel Coalition. And the question that is asked here is, what can pastors do about political division? What can they do? Uh, with November 5th is when this came out. And obviously, timing is not, you know, it, it's because the midterms are coming. That's why this article came out, obviously. And we'll just kind of go through it here. Midterm elections are around the corner. For many pastors, this time of year brings up fear and dismay. A pastor recently told me a congregant came to him to say he couldn't stay at the church because he had different political views. Now, let me stop right there. Didn't bring fear and dismay for my pastor. Didn't bring fear and dismay for, probably for some of your pastors. What would cause a pastor to have fear and dismay? They're going to lose congregants. They're going to have to be forced to take a side on something. It's going to sow seeds of division at their church. And that doesn't, it doesn't have to be that way. And if you're trying to keep a church together where you have people of fundamentally different ethical views, because that's what it requires at this point in our national conversation, even on local matters at this point, the divide is so uh, deep. I mean, there was a time you could be a Democrat and a Christian. I, I will admit this uh, as far as you could be consistent in your ethics for the most part. And and there was a way to now the chasm is so so uh, deep and wide I don't see how it's possible to do that it's just there may be a Democrat here or there especially it would have to be I guess on a local level that you could say well you know they're they're out of step with the rest of the Democratic Party maybe in some rural southern areas or something but the party the the main disagreements that we have today are over very fundamental issues and they're not issues most of the time, well, I would say just about every time today, there's social issues that the Bible's not silent on. So 
a pastor who's afraid of that, who's trying to sidestep that, transcend that, make sure that the apple cart isn't upset, their feathers aren't ruffled, uh, that kind of a pastor is probably not the kind of pastor that you want to be following. I'm just going to say, because that's someone who's more committed to keeping the church as an institution, uh, an institution of this world, functioning smoothly than they are about actually making disciples, applying uh, the principles of uh, the kingdom of God, of Christian ethics, to matters of discipleship. That's that's my two cents on this, because it doesn't have to be this way, and I not every pastor is like this, but they're making this kind of universal-sounding claim that this is when pastors get afraid. I heard still another story of a pastor who left his church because the political, the political division was overwhelming. Most of you know similar stories. The politics pandemic has hit the church in a unique way in the last six years. Really, really, TGC. I mean, if, if only we knew why that would be. Is there like a, I don't know, a major Christian blog or publication that keeps pushing things, especially to the left, and uh, trying to influence pastors and church leaders to conceive of politically left issues as justice issues? I wonder. I wonder if, if only I knew the answer to that question. A recent LifeWay survey indicated 63% of pastors are frequently overwhelmed by stress, and one of the most consistent stressors is a political division. Okay, so here's the here's the solution. You ready? Here's what TG says you ought to do. Right? They said I'm sure they're going to say, figure out what the Bible says about the issues and preach the full counsel of God, so your people are discipled into stewarding their vote well when they get into that voting booth. Is that what they say? Oh no, no, that's not that's not what they say. Uh, remind Christians of their first loyalty. The most important thing church leaders can do is remind people of their first loyalty to Jesus and his church. We must remind Christians that our faith is political at its core, so we can be neither private nor partisan. Neither private nor partisan. Okay. In our day, it's become a truism to say Jesus didn't come with a political message. The common trope goes like this. Though Israel expected a warrior king to come riding on a white horse to overthrow Rome, he instead came up with a spiritual message about their hearts. Jesus simply wants a relationship with you. The problem is, this is a half-truth. When Jesus came, he made a political announcement. And this this is, by the way, TGC, um, I've described them as Neo-Kyperian. And, and it's a very vague, broad Kyperianism of sorts. It's a Richard Mao type of Kyperianism. It's, it's Tim Keller's Kyperianism. They're they want it's the every square inch thing, but they want um. They they they're still very suspicious of political power, of Christians getting involved with, in that. So Christian nationalism, no bueno. But at the same time, the way that they apply this uh, common grace and the way that God's God's sovereign reign is that through the institution of the church. Christians are to uh, infiltrate and influence every single, whether it's the arts, whether it's politics, uh, media, academics, they, they, they're supposed to influence every single uh, institution of society. And so it's, it's a weird fusion in my mind because that really wasn't, like Kuiper literally started or was part of starting a Christian political party. So when they say here, well, we can't be partisan, well, that would exclude Kuiper. But they, it's a weird, and I, I don't know if it's, I've, I've wondered if there's like a weird Anabaptist like mix in, going on here where, because Anabaptists very much conceive of the church as outside the world and it's it's uh, viewing the world objectively. 
creating this counterculture over here, kind of. And TGC seems to be very much about that. But the difference is with Anabaptists, they don't think of themselves as infiltrating the world. They're like very separate. So TGC kind of wants this like bird's eye view, we're over here in the church, but we're going to infiltrate all these places. And when a Christian steps out of line and starts saying, you know, I'm not here to influence by representing the church primarily. I, I want to be here as someone who actually uh, wields political power, gets elected into the office, and then does so for the sake of Jesus. And I, I'm going to, uh, like you just saw, was in Oklahoma, the new governor proclaimed, he, he said it was outside of Kyperion, every square inch, right? But it doesn't have to be, but it, he, the way he said it, every square inch of Oklahoma, he dedicated to Jesus. You know, that's when they start to get uncomfortable. It's like, no, you're supposed to be a good witness, you're supposed to be winsome. So anyway, it's not surprising that they're saying this, but he, it says Jesus came as a king, so we have one ruler. Here we go. To whom we owe our loyalty. Many think Jesus is king merely means he is Lord of my life. We forget Jesus is more. He's the king of kings. Um, king over this world, world's political divisions. No other loyalty comes first for Christians. We're part of the city uh, and kingdom of followers from around the world that he's forming. So the most politically active thing church leaders can do each week is remind people Jesus is king. Okay, that's really good. It's a really good broad statement. I mean, of course, they, they say things that I, in this that I'm like, eh, like um, the the only one to whom we owe our loyalty. You Would you say that to a kid? Like, you don't owe your loyalty to anyone but Jesus. Or to a wife, you don't owe your, your loyalty to anyone. Like, no. <laughs> no, those the, the spiritual reality doesn't erase the uh, natural uh, hierarchies and obligations that we have on this earth. At all. So, um, you owe your loyalty to more than just, uh, to Jesus exclusively. In fact, to these other, in these, in these other hierarchies in which you operate and live, uh, it's part of your duty to Jesus to give, uh, loyalty and, and, and express your duty to these other institutions. Number two, disciple them in the political realm. Uh, our people need teaching related to politics. Now, let's see where this goes, because remember, I, I said this is this would be my solution, right? And I don't think TGC is, is he goes there. But um, so, so the, the question in my mind would be like, how specifically, how broadly? You, you Remember the rules. You can't be partisan according to this article. That's a no-no. Uh, so you, you want to make sure that the apple cart isn't ruffled too much, but you're still supposed to somehow disciple them into politics. So how do you do that? Our people need teaching related to politics. This might come as a shock. Aren't we supposed to de-elevate politics in our congregations? Some might say this is precisely the problem. We need to focus more on the gospel. We need to teach more on the unity God has called us to. But I wonder if people are divided over politics because we've neglected to teach them how to have political discussions. Okay, there it is. It's not, <laughs> they're going to, I knew they would do this. They're going to locate the issue. It's not, the issue isn't fundamentally an ethical issue. Man, you got some people thinking wrong ethically over here. You get, you, they're, they're, they're wrong. They're just wrong. The Bible says this. They are doing this. They are believing this. So you need to correct that. That's not what the, that's not what they're saying. They're saying they're looking at the problem here. No, the problem is more surface level. The problem is we don't know how to have political discussions. So it's not that we're confused over the political positions we should have. It's that we can't even approach the we can't even have a discussion about it. And and so we need we need more civility. We need more winsomeness and all that. I asked a few pastors who've had problems, it says, with politics in their churches, what they wish they would have done differently. A few said the same thing. They wish they'd have been quicker to disciple people towards knowing about politics and 
stewarding ethics and nope, nope. It says impersonal conversations. So our conversational skills are really bad. That's what it is. We're not using our library voices and that's really causing problems. And so this isn't really discipleship. This, I mean, this could be part of it, but at the, the crux of the, the issue, the, the reason that churches are dividing in the last few years, especially isn't because they forgot how to have conversations all of a sudden. You know, did, did everyone, did all the Christians know how to have conversations? I mean, pretty much they were better at uh, conversations. And then all of a sudden in 2020, like they all decided we don't know how to talk anymore. I don't think that was the issue. I don't think it was they, they needed an English lesson or an, or even a lesson in manners necessarily. Some might, but it, the, the big picture here is uh, there, there was an opportunity to expose the actual belief some people held privately. Now they're coming out publicly. And so I think the fracture was already there. For some, they were convinced. They were taking positions they had not taken before. I saw this with people that I knew for years that I thought, well, they never fall for Marxism and they're posting black squares in 2020. They're putting on the mask. They're doing the whole thing. And I'm like, where did, where did this come from? Well, obviously their position changed on things or, or they might think my position changed, which it didn't, but they, their position changed. And, and so, um, to, to use our library voice isn't going to fix this. It says we tend to forget people are already being discipled. Or here, here it goes. Cable news outlets and the larger culture chain people in politics of rage. Pastors need to be ready to shift the direction of a negative conversation. Reminds me of the Christian uh, radio station near me. Today's positive sound. That's so Christian should be the uh, the upbeat. And yes, in a sense, we have a hope, but. Here's the thing. There's some things you should be outraged about, have a righteous indignation about, and it's not wrong to have righteous indignation. If they're doing drag queen library hour in your town, if they're, I mean, they've been killing babies for how many years, depending on the state you live in, and there's hardly any states have actually outlawed abortion. I don't know if any actually have uh, completely. There's some that have talked about it, but that's been going on for years, obviously. Um, With, uh, how do I say it? (laughs) Issues of election maybe integrity. Should I say that? Uh, uh, other issues that, I mean, there's so many of them now. There's a lot that I think we would do well to be upset about in a righteous way. How do you uh, be angry and yet do not sin? So, uh, number three, be a non-anxious presence. We can lead congregants to be a non-anxious presence in a turbulency of indignation. Uh, the culture of the church usually follows the lead of its pastors. Let's see. Be cheerful and encouraging. I, and I agree with this one, actually. Yeah, I think you do need to, I mean, not Pollyanna, but you definitely need to be encouraging. And it's very hard to. So being a cheerful warrior can be difficult. And I feel that. I definitely do. Often our people need to an example to show them what it looks like to navigate the issues in our day. Level head. Okay, so yeah, I would agree with that one. Number four, be clear where the Bible is clear. All right. So uh, political interpretation of the Bible is fraught with complications. How about this, TGC? How about a biblical interpretation of politics? Can we do that? Instead of a political interpretation of the Bible, let's do a biblical interpretation of politics. Uh, Christians disagree with each other about politics because the Bible seems to be giving diverging impulses. The Bible is a story, not an answer book for political policies. We don't have a systemic, but you have principles, guys. Acknowledge it. (laughs) How do Christians approach governmental systems? How should the budget, I'll tell you how Christians approach governmental systems. We have examples in scripture. Uh, How about centralized authority in the form of a king? 
yeah, not the best. Here's the trade-off. You're going to be taxed. Your sons are going to go to war. So do you really want that? I mean, you can have it. Uh, judges, nah, not so good of an example. Everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. Yeah, the free market, uh, if it's just, I, I know. I know people are going to jump down my throat. <laughs> John, the free market, we're not. I know, I know. I'm, I'm for the free market. But if, if you don't have any, uh, if it's just anarchy, let's say, like everyone might, might is right, doesn't work either, right? We know that. We have examples in scripture. Um, we have uh, exper experience of scripture as a guide to us, frankly. So what should the budget uh, look like? Well, uh, it, the budget's going to reflect the values that you have, the things that you prioritize as a people. What kinds of things should you prioritize? Human life should be up there, right? Um, like protecting it, like punishing criminals. Like that's part of the government's job. If, if it's not that and you're going to welfare and the Bible says if uh, you don't work, you shouldn't eat, how should we think about that? I mean, I'll, I'm already just off the top of my head coming up with a way to approach this. How should a nation deal with immigration? Well... There were laws in the Old Testament about aliens and sojourners and how to treat them. And by the way, they didn't immediately become, they weren't aliens and sojourners anymore because they crossed a border. Uh, and that certain cities did have walls around them. So there were borders in that sense. So there was, people knew who the alien and the sojourner were. Some stories seem to imply one answer and some commands seem to imply another. Many pitfalls confront interpreters and it's easy to read our own prejudices into the text. So this is this whole the emphasis of this whole thing is it's it's so complicated it's so I mean this would be intimidate anyone if it's so complicated who am I to try to approach such a complicated question I'd like to suggest to you all it's not actually as complicated as you think a lot of the issues pre presented today aren't all that complicated maybe the mechanisms uh, for in, in a country of our size to administer policies would be complicated but the moral principles involved not that complicated. It's not easy to respect the difference between Old Testament political life and New Testament political life. It's, man, I don't think it's that. I mean, it, if you're, if, if, let me put it this way. If you're outside of Israel in the Old Testament, so you weren't a Jew, and you were uh, trying to figure out, how do I set up a government? Where would you look? What example? I was just reading about Solomon this morning. I literally was reading this morning about Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. Guess where she went? She went to Solomon. It's working for you. The law of God was to be a light to the nations. So does that mean every single thing that every single ceremonial law that not necessarily no, but what does it mean? The character of God's revealed in the principles, the moral principles that constructed the political laws of the nation of Israel, and that's something that was supposed to uh, be applicable. That wisdom is applicable uh, universally. That doesn't mean, and, and by the way. Um, I, I got to be very careful how I say this. It doesn't mean that every law is suited for every era and every region. It means the principles in them, the general equity. That, that's uh, what the Westminster Confession says. I, I would be there, a general equity kind of guy. That um, it's there's going to be certain outworkings of moral principles that are suited for differently in different places. But the moral principles are steadfast. They remain the same. They're universal. All right. A pastor told me about how a congressman once asked Washington, D.C. Pastor Mark Dever how we should vote on a budgetary issue. Dever told the pastor he had strong opinions on the issue, but the Bible wasn't clear on the topic, so he simply said, I will pray for you. He wanted to reserve his pastoral authority for matters where scriptures are clear. That's, see, here's, <laughs> now I don't know what the issue was. So maybe it is an issue where it's like, man, I really don't know about this, but you're, shouldn't your pastor be able to give you some something better than that? I just, I'm going to pray for you. 
at least even if it's not a completely uh, well-fleshed-out answer, shouldn't a pastor be able to give you some kind of moral authority on a moral question, if that's what it is? Now, I, he's not giving me enough information to know exactly what the question is, so I can't really weigh in too much, but I wouldn't put this story in there as a you know point in my corner. Like, this is, this is what you're supposed to do. This is a success story. No, this is, I wouldn't say that's a success story. It's good that Mark never prayed for this guy, but uh, I, I remember when I was in Washington, D.C. in 2020, I think it was. Yeah, 2020. Uh, there was a... I'm trying to remember. I think it was spring of 2020. There was a protest. It was... Uh, yeah, it was during the Amy Coney Barrett stuff. Was that... No, so it, ha- it couldn't have been 2020. It must have been 2019. Anyways, uh, I was in D.C., and there was a guy there protesting uh, against the pro-lifers. And I started talking to him, and turns out he attended Mark Dever's church. <laughs> He's a Christian, because I said, "Well, I'm a Christian." You know, that was one of my. I'm, I'm against abortion. I believe life starts at conception. That God or or um, protects wants us to protect life. And he, he was, "Well, I'm a Christian." I said, "You're a Christian, really?" You know, you know, I'm very concerned about Donald Trump's racism and this and that. And I'm personally against abortion, but I I think that it should be it should be legal. And when I got into it with him, like I, I asked him very specifically, where do you go to church? You know, he goes to Capitol Hill Baptist Church. And he had been there for a while. And at this point, um, it, it was, see now? <laughs> it Now I'm, I'm really going back and forth in my mind on whether this was 2020 or 2019. I'm going to have to go look it up. But because uh, I want to say that, that they were shut down for COVID. But see, my mind might be blurry on those details, but it's definitely not blurry on this detail. The guy definitely went to Capitol Hill Baptist, and I, I remember it as clear as day, him telling me that the Republicans' racism was just uh, as, oh no, he said it was even more. It was even more um, damaging and disturbing than than was uh, the um, Democrats' position on abortion. So it's like, I'm not saying Mark Dever told him that, I don't think so, but it's this position that we need to be so neutral that we can't ever take these stands or people have to do a lot of digging to figure out what we believe. It's kind of shameful for a pastor. This stuff is so basic. It, people should know. Uh, n- not that you're politically do- doing political sermons every week, but in general, when you make application, there's tons of examples today that you can make application from if you're going through a passage exegetically. And people are going to know that pastor is against abortion or whatever the issue is. All right. Church leaders are the first line of defense in political discipleship. Yeah, well, some defense that was. The culture will attempt to train our people, but the church is meant to be an alternative society that presents a new way of life. See, bingo. That's what I said earlier. The church is an alternative society that presents a new way of life. That's the winsomeness. That's the trying to beckon people to, hey, think, look at us. Look how good we have it here. Um, And um, if we walk in faithfulness, this too will be part of our public witness, the unity we display. Okay, so I would like to suggest another way of approaching this. And that is this. Know what the Bible says, first of all. Be able to apply it to the topics of the day. Ethical topics, political topics. Then teach your people, if you're a pastor, how to apply those things, how to steward your vote well. And if there's any political authority that anyone in your congregation has, how to steward that authority well. And that is a much superior and a much more life-changing and a much more... uh, you know, I think I don't, I was going to say gospel protecting, but I know people are going to read into that the wrong thing. Um, 
it's a much more it's a much better way to assist the proclamation of the gospel uh, when magistrates do what is right on the local level or the, the national level. Uh, it's it's a much better thing for the church in general too when magistrates uphold the law of God. That's what is the, that's the root thing that's used to convict people of their sin is the law of God. Uh, on their hearts. And so if you denigrate the law of God and the government does that and sets the tone for that, then that has an effect. All right, well, that's TGC and their unhelpful article. And I figured I would just go through that with you. Uh, much more to get to. We've got 107 people streaming right now. And <laughs> Biden Fetterman 2024, someone wrote on. <laughs> yes, Biden Fetterman 20. That would be, that would be the funniest. I, and I mean, look, I don't want to see our country go downhill any more than it already is, but I mean, Biden Fetterman, that would be, uh, they wouldn't be able to construct a sentence between the two of them. It would be very interesting. <laughs> uh, let's see here. Yeah, a lot of you relating to this whole idea that uh, the church must transcend these politics, that the church, the pastor's job is to somehow be neutral on these things. So, yeah, I've been in a lot of churches like that. I've visited a lot of churches over the last like four years, and I run into that all the time. That is the default setting in a lot of churches. But there, there are churches, and there's a lot of them actually that um, probably not as many at all. I, but there are churches out there that are solid that aren't like that. Just so you know, discerningchristians.com. That's where you can go and find some of them. Lord willing. Okay. Uh, any other questions here? Mostly just good observations from people. Yes. Yep, Matthew 22, Christ, yeah, absolutely. Christ lived in Imperial Rome. Uh, and not just Imperial Rome, Christ Christ lived in an empire, Roman Empire, but he also lived in a nation. He lived in the nation of Israel. And uh, there were local leaders, there were also national leaders, and he did give us a template for uh, how to interact. Uh, I don't think what Christ was doing was showing people how to, in his example at least, how to um, run a government, because that wasn't his purpose. His purpose was to seek and save the lost. But he endorses the rest of Scripture, which does give us, um, which does give us uh, what we're supposed to be applying. Okay, let's see what other things here. Let's see. Yeah, what's up? <laughs> All right, we're gonna uh, move on a little bit and talk about. Let's see, where are we gonna go from here? I think what I'd like to do. We're gonna get into some total depravity stuff from Stephen Wolf's book. I think I think that's probably the next thing. That'll probably be the best thing to do next before we get to Al Mohler and that stuff. Let's start here. This is a tweet uh, from a guy. Many of you may not even know who this guy is, but his name's Neil Shenvey. He has a, uh, what does he have? He has a, he has a website. And uh, I, I felt, I, I thought some of the things that he's posted about critical race theory can be helpful in, in just describing it in the past. Um, I th I've had disagreements over how he applies his critique of critical race theory because he goes to J.D. Greer's church and uh, he just uh, he's in the Southern Baptist Convention and and, uh, and he's run cover for some of the guys in that convention who I think are pushing who have pushed at least critical race theory stuff. So we're we're similar in the sense that I think we're both against critical race theory. Different in the sense that uh, I would I would say that it's happening in the SBC and I would call out the names of here's where it ha it's happening. And um, and I think he would disagree with me on on that, but um, but we'll put we'll put it this way: a, a guy that would be known for I think popular in the popular 
Twitter world, if you want to call it that, people who will follow this kind of stuff, uh, I think they would say that we're on the other side. We're on we're on the conservative side of being against social justice, etc. That's what people would say, probably, right? So this isn't like a critique of uh, a hardened social justice warrior uh, type who is, uh, you know, trying to rip down the patriarchy or anything like that. And it's not even really a critique of him, but he brought the, he brought it up, and then the comments are really what I was interested in. Like all these comments. Okay, this is this is what he brings up, and it's not it's not social justice. Uh, I, I could probably connect it, but it's not really related. It's it's uh, from Stephen Wolf's book, The Case for Christian Nationalism, and he quotes him on page 22, which is the introduction. He's been doing a lot of quotes of Stephen Wolf's book. He's reading through it. He's quoting it. If you go to page 22 of The Case for Christian Nationalism, here's what it says. And I'm going to read uh, for you here uh, what uh, he, he posts. The fall of man placed man in a state of sin. The state of sin or total depravity is misunderstood even in reformed circles. The fall's principal effect concerned man's relationship to God and the promised heavenly life, for it removed man's highest gifts, those which drew him to heavenly life. Man retains his earthly gifts, those that lead him to the fundamental things of earthly life, such as family formation and civil society. Thus man still has his original instincts and still knows the principles of right action, which incline him to do what is good. But the loss of his heavenly orientation affects his whole being, such that he sins not only in relation to God, but also toward his fellow man. The question is, what is the extent of discontinuity from prelapsarian or pre-fall Adam? And so, and he goes on uh, with this. And and so he says, he's making the point that civil government is not, in, it's not introduced because of the fall of man, which is a, a very common uh, view. In fact, I think, isn't that what Thomas Paine believed? Uh, we wouldn't even have government if, if men were angels. You wouldn't have, wouldn't need it. And Stephen Wolf is saying, no, 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 that's not true. Government is, even in his perfect state, there would be government. And after the fall, uh, that that template or that uh, that purpose for government, that plan for government, that didn't go away. That's still there. And it's still possible for people, uh, even those who are not Christians, to pursue uh, political good, essentially. Now, here's, here's what uh, Neil takes from this, because he, he quotes it. He just quotes this. This is all he quotes. Total depravity is misunderstood even in reform circles. Man still has his original instincts and still knows the principles of right action, which incline him to what is good. Now, um, I see a big problem here with the way this is being quoted in that it's, it's not wrong to to quote, obviously, you'd, you'd have to quote. People sometimes get on to me, John, you're you're taking things out of context. And I always say, look, show me. Because look, I'm open to that. If I miss something, if I'm uh, leaving something that's fundamental or important to understand out, uh, then let me know. But what, what we're trying to do is we're trying to summarize. We're trying to get to what's the kernel of truth here? What's the thesis? What's, what's being argued here? And this is not really what Stephen's arguing. That's the, this is the icing. What Stephen's arguing, the cake, is that government is a good thing, that man, uh, even fallen man, still has the capacity to participate in. All right? So Neil takes, and he, he chops up this quote, and, uh, that, and he just makes, a, it makes it sound very general, that man still has, this origi has his original instincts and still knows the principles of right action, which inclined him uh, to what is good, without any explanation. 
Now, it's, it, this isn't like a huge thing. This isn't like a big, 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 big deal the way he quoted it, I guess. I, I shouldn't, I should say that. It's not, it's not huge, but it may, I'm being nitpicky perhaps. I don't know. But it is a problem in my mind. So um, I think maybe I said it was a big problem before. So I'm, I'm going to retract that if I said that. It's not a big, big problem, but it's definitely, it's not helpful to, to for the purpose of understanding. It's not a helpful way to communicate when you're leaving out, I think, what his main point is. And, um, and, and the rest of the book is going to tell you what instincts are, what uh, right action is, what, um, what a lot of the stuff uh, that he's quoting is. So here's what happens. It, it blows up with people, and, and Neil's part of this, I guess. He keeps asking people, you know, that, uh, like people, here's someone defending Stephen. Standard, fair, reformed orthodoxy. And then Neil says that humans being, beings are inclined towards the good or that God's law is written on their hearts, points, is towards the good. I botched that, didn't I? That human beings are inclined toward the good or that God's law written on our heart's point is toward the good. No, I didn't. That's the way he phrased it. Uh, here's another one. Uh, let's see. Well, there was a bunch of them. Now I'm not seeing them all. But anyway, what happened was there was people that were, um, there was a divide. People were just weighing in on this. And many were just saying, like, this is not Reformed theology. This is not total depravity. And I would normally not weigh in on something like this on Twitter. Just, I mean, this, it's not a tweet that got a lot of traction. It's not, but it made me think of something. Because someone sent this to me, and I just immediately thought, that has been a problem for years, I think. And I think that a lot of it's related to the two kingdoms thing. So I'm going to read for you a section from the Case for Christian Nationalism. Because that's, he's quoting from the introduction here. If, if you read up to the actual section, which it's not even that much farther. Uh, it's page, what page is it? Um, I think it's on page 40. Or no, 40. Let's do this. It's going to be easier for me. I think I had my finger in the wrong spot. I'm going to pull it up on Kindle. And yeah, I'm going to pull it up here. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to see if I can show you live here. Let's see. So that you can read along with me. That'll make it more interesting than just me reading here. Kindle. All right. We have Kindle up now. So here's the section, and it does say, oh, page 81, so it's definitely not page 40. No wonder I have my finger in the wrong spot. So uh, it's the section on total depravity. So this is where Stephen actually fleshes this out, and I want to to read this to you. So I, I really do think that this has been a problem for years. Within the New Calvinism movement, I think, has ultimately... Uh, I just noticed a tendency for people to get this wrong for some reason. And it's created, I think, all kinds of problems, uh, potentially at least, uh, where people are thinking that they have to be... Here we go. You can see me now. Where people are, are feeling like they're in the pit all the time, that there's there's totally depraved, which means that uh, there's just nothing whatsoever. There's There's nothing good in them. 
And and I, and I understand when I sing or when we say there's nothing good in I, I, I I'm going to flesh this out. I'm going to make the distinction in a minute here. But I think that there's a tendency in the new Calvinism, if you want to call it that, that people involved in that think of this as such a an absolute thing, total depravity, and such a pernicious thing that there's literally nothing within man that is, that even even on a design level, there's nothing good in man. There's just nothing. And so it, I, I've just seen it, this create struggles, even in my own heart, because I used to, I think, be more along this line of thinking, that um, there that any inclination I have, any desire that exists, any, uh, well, instinct is the word Stephen uses here. So any instinct that I have, any wiring even from uh, from God isn't really from God. It's all wrong. It's all bad. It's all, we got to just, it, it, you, you wind up in sort of an asceticism over this. I don't know if any of you have seen this. You raise your hand. Tell me if you've seen what I'm talking about here. And so I think that Stephen's um, corrective is really important. So let's read it. And he is not drawing a lot from Scripture. He says that in this book. He's drawing from theologians. But these are a lot of these are, are these are theologians steeped in the Bible. And, and Calvin's one of them here. I'm going to read. Story time with John. The fall of man led to total depravity. In the 20th century especially, there's been considerable confusion, even the, in the Reformed world, over what this means. Total is not to be conflated with utter depravity, as if sinful man sins in every respect. Rather, sin affects every aspect of man's being, his intellect, will, desires, heart, etc. Corruption is thorough. But the Reformed doctrine of sin, as classically stated, did not assert the doctrine of natura delita. (laughs) I don't know if my Latin's that good as several Roman Catholic authors have alleged about Reformed doctrine. Now, let me stop here for a minute, because I just thought of something else. Uh, this is something that you hear a lot with the woke crowd when they say, when you say, where's systemic racism? What are you talking about? Systemic racism. And they'll say, well, of course there's systemic racism. Don't you believe in the depravity, depravity of man? Do you believe in total depravity? I thought you were a Calvinist. I thought you were Reformed. If you're Reformed, you have to believe in total depravity. And if you believe in total depravity, you have to believe in systemic racism because you know we're and, – and I've listened to this and I thought, like, what, what does that mean? Like, what, is there systemic pedophilia? Is there systemic uh, – like, any sin? Insert the sin because it's – like, because we're all corrupt. We're all – the doctrine of total depravity isn't that you are all guilty of every sin and as corrupt as you can possibly be. And that's not what it is. But the woke people have taken advantage, I think, of this misunderstanding. So – we shall go on. That is, no Reformed theologian claimed that the fall of man separated man, listen to this, entirely from knowledge of the natural law and the ability to perform it. Nor did man lose the facility of reason or even civil virtue. Indeed, the Reformed doctrine of sin as articulated by post-Reformation Reformed theologians is not unlike that of Roman Catholic Thomists. Recall that we distinguish the two specific, and by the way, he's got, he's footnoted all this stuff. You, you click on any of this, well, in theory, you're supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to click on this and get a footnote. There we go. Uh, it, it's very well cited. Recall, he says, that we distinguish the two species of gifts that God gave to man, natural and supernatural, or perhaps better put, constitutive and perfective gifts. 
Okay, so he's already worked through a categorization distinction in the book. Now, Neil's, Neil's posting from the introduction. He hasn't gotten to this point. This is why I think it's, it's not wise to do this. And I would read the whole book, which I did. So as soon as I saw the quote, I was like, ah, Neil, Neil's not, he doesn't get it. And the people that are posting in ignorance that haven't read the book, they haven't gotten to the section where Stephen explains this stuff. He's already, he's making category distinctions that Reformed theologians have made. This is what he says. I said that the former, i.e. reason, body, understanding, are essential to man as man and principally concern earthly things. The perfective gifts are not essential to man as such, but necessary for his perfection and his knowledge of or desire for and ability to strive after eternal life and to worship God rightly in the heart. These latter gifts are primarily inward since they provide the ability to perform theological good, a good conscience before God in all one's works. These are the highest gifts in the principal part of the divine image. The two sets of gifts were necessary for man to be righteous in both his being and his actions. Hence, the loss of the perfective gifts alone makes man unrighteous in being and worthy of condemnation. Now, what's he saying here? This is the two, two kingdoms, the, the classical or the uh, Protestant two kingdoms distinction. Not the Escondido stuff. The classical two kingdoms distinction is what he's making here. He's saying there's an inward and outward part of man. Uh, I mean, visible and invisible church, temporal world and eternal world. And these are distinctions that are made in that, that scheme. And there's a lot of theology to back this up. It might be surprising, he says, to recover that Reformed theologians, including Calvin, affirm that man lost only the supernatural gifts at the fall. The natural gifts were corrupted, but not lost. Calvin writes, for example, and I'm going to give you examples of this in a minute, so just hang with me. Calvin writes, for example, that man's natural gifts were corrupted by sin and his supernatural gifts withdrawn, meaning by supernatural gifts, the light of faith and righteousness, which would have been sufficient for the attainment of heavenly life and everlasting felicity. The devastation of the fall is found in man's inability to worship God in heart to attain his ultimate heavenly end. Man can no longer choose spiritual things or achieve theological good. He can no longer perfect outward action with proper inward spiritual obedience. Man lost his chief good, the divine image that ensured his righteousness and holiness. So he's quoting Jonathan Edwards here. He quotes Calvin. Here's what Calvin says. Um, the natural or constitutive gifts remain, though corrupted, because such gifts could not be polluted in themselves, states Calvin. Indeed, reason, this is quoting Calvin, reason by which man discerns good and evil and by which he understands and judges is a natural gift. So it could not be entirely destroyed by the fall. Turretin argues that in losing original righteousness, nature indeed remains mutilated and depraved, but is not destroyed as to essence. And he goes on, he quotes a number of other theologians, and they're all, I think they're pretty much all reformed. So what does this all mean, John? Get to the beef. Well, here's, here's the beef of it, guys. Even the unrighteous dads, fathers, even, even the ones who aren't regenerate, when their sons ask them for a fish, do they give them a snake? That's what he's getting at here. When a mother has a child, if that mother is not redeemed, is the mother's heart naturally inclined towards the child? Yes, it is. And the mothers who murder their children, there's a special category for that, even in the world. The world who doesn't know Christ uh, personally as their savior knows there's something twisted about that. There's something different about that. There's something not natural about it. They know that because a mother is maternal. A mother uh, reacts to when her child cries. 
seeks to comfort, seeks to nurture. Um, it's there's so many things baked into our nature because God put it there, and we're talking about though talking about things that yes corrupted but not destroyed. So yes, it's very possible for a mother to uh, kill her children. That can happen. Really twisted things can happen. Even though it's not natural for, uh, even though it is natural for even non-Christians to be inclined towards uh, obligations and duties they have in society that they're born into, it doesn't mean they're all going to do it. And those who do do those things, when they do them, when a mother, let's say, feeds her children, and it's a beautiful thing, and it's a good thing, even if they're not a, a Christian, what's the motive of their heart? Are they worshiping God? Are they acknowledging God? Are they thanking God? Are they, um, are they in a right relationship with God as they're doing this? Or are they just enjoying his blessings without gratitude? Well, that becomes a problem. And that's where total depravity comes in. That, yes, in one sense, in a very important sense, it's the difference between heaven and hell. In a very important sense, even the quote-unquote good people are on their way to judgment if they do not have Jesus Christ uh, as a substitute in their place because even their righteous deeds are filthy rags. But filthy rags in what sense? In a spiritual sense. They're not right with God. And, and so if you make this distinction, things make sense. And that's Stephen Wolf's point, and that's the point of the theologians he's quoting here, including Calvin that you must make a distinction. There aren't these natural, there's natural gifts, they're supernatural. And when man fell, what was marred? Did, did man cease to uh, protect his own when, when maybe some men did, but it took, it took steps of depravity to get there. So Romans 1, I think, even uh, shed some light on this to some extent in, in that um, man is... There are truth suppressors, and there's a gradation of it. So you go deeper and deeper and deeper into depravity the more you suppress the truth. But there is a knowledge of God. There is a conscience of some kind that men have. And there is a creation design that we have uh, in us. Um, and so there's certain things we know. And we are capable of acting on the behalf of our good. We're capable, of, and one of the most basic instincts Stephen talks about in the book, if you read the book, should, you should read the book, but... He talks about is the instinct to survive. Is that a good instinct? Yeah, it is. Uh, the vast majority of people who aren't Christians have that instinct, don't they? And they operate based on it. They're, they're trying to survive. Now, are they doing it for all the right reasons? No, but they're still doing it. And so that's so, so you have to make a distinction. You have to be able to say in one sense it's good, and in another sense the motives behind it perhaps aren't all the time, or they are uh, they're incomplete, and that incompleteness is so important that it's the difference between heaven and hell. So if you don't make these distinctions, then you're not going to understand the Protestant doctrine, the Reformed doctrine of total depravity. Now, I'm expecting questions to come in about this one. Let's see. Uh, <laughs> yes, there's some opinions about Neil Shenvey out there. Uh, Wolf is describing a state of nature in Lockean positive terms, not Hobbesian negative terms. Um, I, I mean, I don't think, I don't know if Stephen would say he's Lockean, but it, but yeah, I would, I would say much more than Locke than Hobbes, for sure. Yeah, because Hobbes definitely... Uh, the Leviathan is not in, uh, that, that whole concept is not in Stephen's wheelhouse at all. Um, <clears throat> let's see, Neil is so uh, careful to gracious, uh, it's more, uh, I don't want to get away from that. I, I was hoping there would be some 
uh, questions about total depravity here. Uh, thoughts on recent No Quarter November article related to White Boy Summer and all the fun we had this <laughs> all the fun we had this summer. We did have fun this summer, didn't we? Asking again so it doesn't get buried. Okay, I didn't see the first one. Uh, we'll do that. We'll do that. Um, yeah, so there's a uh, No Quarter November, Doug Wilson's uh, blog, and he wrote a blog today, and uh, I will uh, I will share the thoughts on that if we have time at the end here. Uh, all right, let's uh, let's keep going. Let's let's run through this. Uh, man, this, this is going to be super mega edition of the Conversations That Matter podcast, but that is okay. All right, let's – where are we going now? Let, let's do the Al Mohler thing. I'm going to try to run through this stuff uh, a little quicker for you all. I'm going to play for you a clip. I listened to the whole thing, and let me just give you my, my opinion. Al Mohler did a discussion at Southern Seminary, a discussion of issues facing the SBC four days ago. And in this discussion, Al Mohler comes out as the conservative we all knew he was, right? I mean, he's sounding like, boy, is he sounding like a conservative, more so than I've ever heard him sound like a conservative. And and granted, he's been pretty consistent on the women pastor issue, but he's uh, changing his tune, we'll say, on the side B gay Christianity stuff, for sure. He's coming out. I mean, before it was, like, you didn't really know where he was at, and there were some things he said that even made you think he was in favor of, I mean, he, he thought that that orientation was somehow, it could be, um, I don't know if legitimate's the word, but it was something that uh, it wasn't, let's say, as big of a problem as, uh, as the reparative therapist would have you believe. And so he came out against it. Remember 2014, he came out against reparative therapy and apologized for denying same-sex uh, actually, he, he called it homosexual orientation. So now, oh man, he's he's way against side side B Christianity and that whole thing. And it's just interesting to see. I'm, I'm, this is in my mind. I, I watching this guy for years. I'm like, this is such a pivot. But he gets to this, and this this is kind of like all the conservative sounding things he says. He he says this. Listen to this. Uh, disqualifying. That's right. They are. I, I, I think when you look at this, there are a couple other things just very quickly that need to be said. And, and one of them is that there has been a wrongful instinct that has become apparent in many evangelical circles. And that wrongful instinct comes down to this. And, and, and it's basically what we would define as moralism which is to say all we have here is a sin that we can understand and we're going to deal with he's talking about abuse just you know sexual abuse in the spc with that because we understand that sin so if you have a claim of abuse and they're two unmarried people there's been a temptation in many evangelical circles to say well we don't have a clue what to think about on the abuse angle but that's sin because they're having sex outside of marriage and that's all there is to it and that's the limit of our responsibility. And we now know that that, that is not enough, <laughs> that there is much more to the situation than that. The, the, the question of sexual sin does not disappear. Uh, it, it's still the church's responsibility. Okay, so there's one category and that's sexual sin. It's like two people aren't married and they're, they're committing fornication, that's a sin. So that's one category, but he's saying there's something else here, too. But there is a context of abuse in which, I mean, certain things are, we just begin with the, with the understanding that if you are 
in authority over someone, then any kind of sexual expression or, 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 or sexual activity is just absolutely categorically wrong and rightly defined as abuse. Okay, there it is. <laughs> if you have authority over someone, then any sexual activity is rightly categorized as abuse. That you So, uh, man, the, I, I don't think he'd apply it to this, but I don't know how you don't. I mean, uh, doesn't a husband, according to Scripture, have authority over the wife? So is every time you're intimate with your wife, is it abuse? Uh, it makes it abuse because there's authority. What about a female who has authority over a man, a higher rank in the military or a boss at a job and a teacher at a school? The man has uh, strength, though, physical strength to resist the teacher, but uh, but the teacher has the authority. And so... What about in that situation? Where's the abuse coming from? Uh, it could be the teacher, I suppose, if she's threatening the student or something. But it, you can see how complicated this gets. And it's, I was looking up, before this, I was looking up definite legal definitions of abuse and stuff, and none of them match what he's saying. <laughs> this is new. This is something that I think um, is coming in from just the the milu the, the me too stuff it's the it's a critical theory land in which we live and the me too stuff is promoting this uh this new way to approach it now we can certainly uh see it, i don't think it takes a rocket scientist to obviously figure out and this predates any of the critical theory stuff that uh men are stronger than women generally speaking and there's in fact the old testament law uh, accounts for this and so when you have a, a man um, let's say having a sexual relationship with a woman and there's a difference between the way you treat it in the city versus the country. I mean, th these are distinctions made. These are principles given in the old Testament in, in the, uh, mosaic law for how to treat these things. Because if the woman cries out and there's in the city, there's people to hear her, then, um, th then it was obviously, you know, it wasn't consensual or it wasn't, uh, it was, it was fornication. But the way that you tell whether or not it's abuse and whether someone's forcing themselves on someone else is, uh, I mean, there, there's all kinds of tests that are given. And there's there's no foolproof way. I mean, there's even um, to the point of uh, giving giving evidence of uh, a, um, you know, if a husband accuses uh, a wife of not being faithful, there's the evidence of virginity shall be presented. There's all these things that are archaic that we, but the principles themselves are, are everlasting. They're not archaic, or they're, they're, they're uh, I shouldn't say they're everlasting, but they're, the principles behind this, though, the moral principles are for today as well. And so um, I will admit that applying it to our modern situation makes it difficult, but I think you start considering things like what were, were there, was there any evidence that there was an opportunity and a um, an attempt to resist? Was it reported? Was it, I mean, you have to look at all these things. Uh, so in the case of Jennifer Lyell, we'll say, and uh, was it David? Not David. Uh, man, I can't remember the the professor there at Southern Seminary, but there's a professor at Southern Seminary, and uh, Jennifer Lyell was the, uh, I don't know why I can't, I thought it was David something. I can't remember the name of the professor. Someone write the name of the professor in the comment section if you remember. Anyway, in that whole situation, which happened at Southern Seminary, um, David Sills, it was David Sills. Uh, 
you had a situation where it looked like you know they're traveling long distances to meet up it's a, it was formerly a student uh, and professor relationship but he kind of adopted her into the family that he had in in an informal way and but then she works for him and then for a period of years they're like meeting up at even inconvenient places i mean that's doesn't match the pattern of abuse necessarily but it's called abuse because well guess what David's, David uh, had more authority. And because there was more authority, it's necessarily abuse now. That's the new rule. And now Al Mohler is just giving you the principle right here that you're now going to apply to everything. And it's in the context in this conversation of the Southern Baptist Convention. And, and I have to say, it's it's one of the worst parts of this whole discussion because he, he, try, he says that the churches of the Southern Baptist Convention retain their autonomy, that there's no authority that the executive uh, committee has. Uh, re really other than kicking churches out of the convention. And, um, but then he turns around and he talks about how, you know, things are just so bad. The, the, the executive committee, the Southern Baptist Convention as a denomination has to really get this abuse thing right because it's just such a bad, bad thing. And it's, it's pervasive. It's, I mean, he's just going along with the narrative and, and it's, it's just not, I mean, at least the numbers we have, it's not. Yeah, does it happen in any big organization? It does. Absolutely. And it's horrible that it happens. It's evil and it's wrong. It needs to be punished to the full extent of the law. I'm probably harsher in what I think should happen to people who um, who actually abuse than Al Mohler is. I mean, I would be harsher on people who I think have adultery than Al Mohler probably is. But I, I don't think it's like this systemic thing that is so pervasive in the Southern Baptist Convention as opposed to other denominations or other organizations. It's just not. And what's the purpose of making it such a big deal and then applying a standard like this? Well, if you apply a standard like this, then you're able to take a situation like Jennifer Lyell and she becomes a perpetual victim and you're able to grandstand and white knight and all those things and make yourself feel good. And uh, and, and these people become political pawns. And so, I mean, that's, I think... I'm not saying they're only political pawns. I'm not saying I'm saying I'm not saying they're political pawns. I'm just saying that you you do the caring well stuff and you treat these people as political pawns. All the reforms, quote unquote, we want for this denomination have to happen because guess what? That person says they do and they were abused rather than opening the word of God saying, well, what does the word of God say? Uh, what what can we actually do? What's physically possible? So Moeller is uh, if he's woke on anything, it's this abuse stuff guarantee it and it just came out the other day uh just a few days ago someone paul b did it continue for years with jennifer lyle yeah that is my understanding is it did i mean the relationship was for years and yes and it was multiple times meeting up at at locations i mean I, it was a while you go watch my video i did on explaining that whole situation and i remember reading through a lot of stuff on it okay uh let's see i hope <laughs> I think Mueller actually has retracted his statements on reparative therapy, believe it or not. No, he never did. Sorry. He never retracted them. He just kind of contradicted them. That's how it works. Okay. Let's let's do this. We're going to just, I'm going to give you two tidbits here real quick. Um, updates I want to share with you. First is on thebaptistmessage.com, and they're reporting that in the McCraney case, for those who don't know, I, just, I won't be long. <laughs> for those who do know, you know what I'm talking about already. Will McCraney versus the North American Mission Board. They've had some witnesses or some uh, testimony come out in the case. It's not looking good for NAM right now. 
Uh, and McCraney's attorneys uh, revealed sworn statements from Scott Thomas, president of the Safari Christian Business Alliance, a faith-based networking media and education company headquartered in New Mexico, and Jimmy Crosby, president of the Jacksonville Baptist Theological Seminary, with both uh, stating they denied employment to McCraney because of statements attributed to NAM. Now, this is interesting. McCraney's been alleging this for years in this whole case. It's say, look, Kevin Ezell went after me, uh, got tried to get me or get 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 I guess got him fired. I now I'm trying to remember. He's been on my show twice. I think yes, got him fired, but then prevented him from getting another job. And this is totally outside the bounds. I mean, it, it wasn't even um, he was working for the Maryland Delaware convention. It's not even supposed to be at the time he was there part of the Southern Baptist Convention, but NAM is uh, acting like they are. And remember, they this is the one where they filed a brief, ERLC filed a brief saying that the Southern Baptist Convention is a hierarchy and these local state conventions basically answer to the Southern Baptist Convention. And it was, it was so weird. So anyway, now testimony is coming out backing up what McCraney has said all along that yes, potential employees are saying we didn't hire him because basically Kevin Ezell uh, North American Mission Board um, told us a story about him, and it deterred us from doing that, which is what he's not supposed to do. He's hurting someone else. Uh, and for for what purpose? For what purpose? So uh, for those who are paying attention to that, I mean, this is one of the big things. If they can get some explore exploration here into the North American Mission Board, they might be able to uncover a lot of other things as well. But this is probably the best shot for Southern Baptists who want reform is this case. And I'm surprised it's not talked about more, but uh, it is important. So I uh, figured I'd just give you a little bit of an update there. And then, of course, um, I'm going to put this in the uh, info section later, but SaveGroveCity.com. I'm going to try to remember to. SaveGroveCity.com. There is a petition there, 368 signatures. I would encourage you to go sign this. Uh, Grove City, if you haven't been paying attention to that whole issue, I mean, it has just been kicking the can down the road forever on this critical race theory stuff. Grove City College has yet to actually really, the administration has yet to apologize. I mean, the way they've handled this has been so terrible. Snubbing the uh, board, it's just, you've heard it here on the podcast before, but I just want to let you know, there's a summary here of uh, what's going on and at Grove City College, what's what's happened uh, thus far. And um, there's a, basically at the end of it says, we're deeply concerned about the college's conservative heritage, we want to see it flourish. We've come to believe that the solution requires leadership change. They want to fire President McNulty. That's the bottom line here. And so I would encourage you. I, I think it's necessary. If you, there's no way to get, I think, anything done at Grove City College uh, that's less than or more than symbolic without firing McNulty. So I would go to SaveGroveCity.com and sign it. If you care about Christian education, uh, even if you conserve, I mean, this is one of the supposed to be a conservative Christian college. And uh, the way that they've handled this has been terrible. Okay, no one's been fired, no punishment, slaps on the wrist. Uh, let's now, okay, last but not least, that was my last topic, but someone, uh, I'm going to go to the comments here. Someone did ask about the, uh, yeah, the white boy summer stuff. Okay, so let's let's just go to that real quick. This is, uh, I'm going to have to probably, let's see here. Look up Doug Wilson's blog. Yeah, here we go. Okay, so I did I did go over this. Is this it? Yes. Welcome to Douglas Wilson. That's not what I wanted. Uh, blog. 
I think it's, is this it? Yes. All right. I don't, I don't want to read this whole thing. This wasn't on the agenda today, but uh, the, Doug Wilson put this out. And it's, it's confusing. It's a little bit confusing in, in some ways, I think, to some people out there. Uh, what I think what's going on is, um, so the guys at, this is like the second or third blog that's similar to this one. The guys at, uh, I guess, uh, Canon Press, Doug Wilson, that whole um, Moscow, or Moscow, I guess they say. Uh, they published Stephen Wilson's book. Stephen Wilson. <laughs> I just combined the two. Stephen Wolf. Stephen Wolf's book, Case for Christian Nationalism. And I think if you look at what Doug Wilson has written about this, there seems to be a bit of a an admission or a a thought that that book could be used to smear. That people will look at that book and think that there's racism under the hood. Uh, I mean, there's, that's really been, in fact, right now, that's the line of attack on, on Twitter, from what I understand. Even someone trying to get William Wolf fired because he endorsed Stephen Wolf's book. Uh, and William Wolf uh, works at Southern Seminary, um, and at least he's an intern there. And so it's on the basis of the fact that in their minds, oh, the book's racist. The book is against, uh, it's against interracial marriage or something. And, and we've talked about that a little bit on this podcast. And I, and I asked Stephen these questions that hopefully help clear that up for some of you. Um, it's, you got to be careful with, with a book of this size. You, you need to try to understand it. You just do. Uh, I'm a big fan of that, trying to understand before just lashing out online, which unfortunately a lot of people just lash out with, without understanding something. This is a very carefully worded book. Anyway, um, I think what's happening though is there's uh, there's a an awareness that people <laughs> that there are people out there who are going to make that accusation, and there are people out there who actually. Uh, do are against interracial marriage that actually uh, do think that there's a conspiracy that uh, the Jews might be behind or you know you've seen what Kanye West has been saying recently and stuff and a sensitivity to the fact that maybe these two things could be conflated maybe look we published this book here and and uh, people are putting it in the category of you know Kanye West will say <laughs> it's they're saying that it's it's just like that or they're putting it of uh, kinist is the other word that's used here, which frankly is, you know, I know Doug Wilson wanted to retire the word racist, but I think it's probably better for him to retire the word kinist because no one knows what that means, even worse than racist. But um, but so I think there's a hedging of like let, let's hedge against uh, that kind of a accusation, and by the way to do it is to write articles or blogs like this. And so I'll just I'll read you a, a few little things from this. And give you my thoughts on, on just, a, we can't read the whole thing. It's just too long. But White Boy Bummer. Now, I've explained it to you before. White Boy Summer is all it is. It's not, so I don't know why. The people who understand it the least seem to be the most intent on defining it sometimes. I've seen, at least on Facebook. Uh, it, all it, it, it is, and, and from the people I know who are who like to post the memes, it's memes, right? But it's a celebration in the midst of a sea of white men being eviscerated in the public eye of 
Look at turn on your television and look at all the commercials. And like, where is there any positive example of a white man, uh, a white masculine figure? You're not going to find it. It's it, it's a total overnight evisceration of white men, and it, it's crowding the calendar. Uh, it's putting new holidays, new observances, and it's all um, it, it's everything. But if it's a white man, if it's Christopher Columbus, we got to make an Indigenous Persons Day. If um, you know, you got the Fourth of July. We gotta we gotta have Juneteenth. We gotta make a, a big a big deal about that. To and, and and maybe you know take away some of that thunder. Uh, Black History Month, uh, Pride Month, Hispanic American Month, and I mean I don't even I can't keep track of all of it. So in this this uh, this calendar, uh, and it's been going on for years, but it's just heightened more lately. And, and, and not just the calendar, but everywhere else in society, white men feeling being under attack in a way, or at least being. Um, the assumption being that they are somehow responsible for the sins of the country or of the world. Uh, white boy summer is just, I think, a, a very positive way that some people, and many of them I don't even think are white, uh, came out and said, you know what? There's some good things about some white people, <laughs> white men, some good things about them. And one of the good things about them is, you know what? They have some, some things they'd like to do in the summer, some hobbies, some activities that they engage in. That they're pretty good at, and that's true. They're you know water skiing and fishing and uh, I don't know what else, whatever else. A lot of water sports. I mean swimming. I mean that's you know turn on the Olympics and you who's competing in the swimming? I mean it looks pasty. I'm just saying, you know. So it was a way to celebrate. These are some positive things about white boys, and we can have fun doing it. And that's all I think it ever was. And people trying to read into it all these other things. Ugh. It just it's embarrassing to me because I'm, I'm just thinking like where are you getting this you're just you're bringing all these assumptions to the table you're, you're not actually like talking to the people who have um at least the people i know of uh that are friends on facebook and stuff who have been promoting that so uh here's some of the things that wilson says let us start with the usual suspects these are folks who have completely well i should probably start before that uh, he says, um, some might want me to begin today's installment of uh, No Quarter November, that's his blog series this month, by avowing that November's goal is to uh, not to attack everybody as though I were trying to st start a reform version of Festivus or something. Uh, I am going to attack everybody, at least everybody I can think of, that has anything whatever to do with whiteness and its adjacent sins. What a pasty pale excuse for a foundational eth ethnic identity. A color, that's it. If you wanted something like that, you should at least have gone for emerald green. That might have been something worth a preen or two, but no. Okay, I think he's just trying to be humorous. Let us start with the usual suspects. These are folks who have completely fallen for the progressive play that is being run on them. That play will be described more fully in the next section, but for the present, let us merely say that they have fallen for a ploy that makes them think that we conservatives somehow want the third string to run out on the court at the opening of the championship game. The material they have been reading makes them think that third string and coach are synonymous. The third string are those who take the natural affection for their own people. That no sensible man ever doubted was a good thing. Hook it to a bicycle pump and inflate it to cringe levels. You know, bracing for the pop. They talk much about love and soil and affection and heritage, and their chief characteristic is crackling envy aimed at anybody who is smarter, wealthier, has a better looking wife, is more influential, or is better connected than they are. And after just a couple of days marinating in that attitude, they start talking ominously about the Jews. Now, here, here's my conundrum in this. When I, I was reading that, I have no clue. I'm like, I don't know who he's talking about here. Then I saw right under that, literally under this paragraph, is a screenshot. 
And it's from a guy named uh, Jesse Vandermolen. Now, I met Jesse Vandermolen in person twice, I believe, uh, at in Iowa. Um, both times, I think, we're in Iowa at events that Enemies Within the Church was doing. Enemies Within the Church stuff. Jesse Vandermolen was, I can't remember all the circumstances. One was a conference, and I met him there. I think that's where I first met him. I haven't spent like a lot of time with him, but um, but I know him from from that. I met him, and uh, we are Facebook friends. Doesn't mean I see every one of his posts at all. But uh, but anyway, he screenshots Doug Wilson screenshots a post. I guess it's from Twitter, so I wouldn't have even seen it because I'm not on Twitter. But it's um, so it's from it's 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 a repost of someone saying conservatives wonder why you get called Nazi. It's because there was once a group of people in Germany who are also against Marxism, globalism, queer theory, transgenderism, pedophilia, and degeneracy, a group who wanted to promote traditional values and nationalism. The difference is this group didn't call the people destroying German society their greatest ally, which I think is referring to Israel. And then whoever, Christ is Lord, I guess, is the account that posted this. And then Jesse, uh, he just reposts it and says yes either on Facebook or Twitter. I'm not sure. It looks like it's a Twitter screenshot. Okay, so that's that's got to be one of the people that he's talking about here. Now, I'm not sure exactly. I can't get in Jesse's head. I don't know why he posted that. I don't know what he was thinking exactly. I Personally, I would not have posted that. I don't really, uh, I don't I don't know. I don't agree with the sentiment. I think that this post, that post is trying to get at. Um, did the, the Weimar Republic have some serious issues? Yeah, it did. <laughs> was Berlin decadent? Yes, it was. Uh, were there things that the Nazis, when they came into power, said that they were going to fix that were actual problems? Well, they wouldn't have gotten into power unless there were actual problems that they claimed to have fixed. That being said, Nazis were still bad guys, all right? And I don't know that Jesse's even saying that they're good guys. It's it's really, it's it's hard to read into this too much. But would I have posted it? No, because I can see the impression it gives. That's not the issue, though, here. Here's the issue. Here's the thing that, so I'm reading this. And this paragraph comes up, and and as I'm reading it, I'm I'm thinking like, okay, I don't know, you know, who is he talking about? I don't know anyone who's talking about blood and soil and then their uh, affection and heritage, but their chief characteristic here, here. This is the important thing here. This is the key. Their chief characteristic is crackling envy aimed at anybody who is smarter, wealthier, has a better looking wife, is more influential, or is better concerned uh, than they are, and they start talking about the Jews. And I'm like. But apparently, it's got he's got to be talking about people like Jesse here, I guess. And the the posts I have seen of Jesse, he loves his wife. He has children. They're Dutch, I think. I mean, Vandermolen. Uh, I've seen them even. I think a picture. That's what you know. My Facebook always gives you the pictures. I don't know if your Facebook algorithms do that, but I get to see all the pictures. So if someone posts a picture of their family, boom, I see it. So I, I saw a picture of him and his family in, in like the the Dutch traditional Dutch dress, wooden shoes, and. I'm just like, I I don't, has a better looking wife? I mean, th this guy's he loves the way his wife looks. This, this is what I don't get, is, is why torch, why torch these people? Um, all right, I'm, I'm leading to something. I'm leading to something. I wasn't planning on talking about this, so I don't have anything uh, that's fully, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of uh, spitballing a bit here, but I do have somewhere I'm leading with this. Um, Okay, we of course reject all ethnic pufferies and we do so with just the right amount of loathing, not so much loathing as to betray insecurity and not so little as to hint that we might be harboring some secret affinity for any of that white pride foolishness. If we attacked it with loud shouts of alarm, that would do nothing except telegraph fear like Trump, 
attacking DeSantis or something. There's a real temptation here. And you need to know that I'm resisting it manfully because I know how it would look. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's a, it reminds me of someone, though, who says, like, man, I could attack you. I could really go after you. In fact, I'm going to post a screenshot. Here you are. <laughs> you know, I could really, but I'm not going to do it. Because, like, what is that? You, you're doing it. I don't know. <laughs> that's, that's, maybe I'm missing something. If I'm missing something, you put it in the info section. And I, will, I will apologize. I don't think I am, though. It's, um, or in the comment section, rather. All right, so it goes on uh, because, okay, ethnic vainglory is like a swollen and misshapen uh, souffle. And so, and so the impulses to attack it with a cricket bat are unrelenting and fierce, but I stand firm. Uh, yeah, and I'd have to search the Doug Wilson archive to know what he means by ethnic vainglory because I don't really know what he means by that. Like if you're proud, if I'm proud of who I am, my ancestry will say, and I'm proud of, in fact, I'll, I'll use an example. I was looking the other day at plane tickets and there's an airport near me, a new airline, and they got cheap tickets going to Scotland and to England. And I'm like, I would love to do that. There's, there's a Harris Island. They probably call it Harry's, but it's, it's, you know, Harris in Scotland. There's, there's castles that would trace back to my family. My mom's maiden name is Carrie. There's a Carrie castle, man. I would love to go back. And why, why would I do that? Because I have a connection. There's a connection there. And with, I hope that wouldn't be, and I don't think Doug Wilson would say it is, ethnic vainglory. It's not genetic determinism. I'm not saying like, uh, you know, everything about me is genetics, but I, I think anyone would do that. If you're, I was talking to a friend the other day who's has roots uh, going back to Germany and Africa, and he'd love to go to both places. And I think that's awesome. I would love for him to go. I really would. And if I could pay for everyone to go, I would do it because I think that's, it's so fulfilling. And I think that's part of uh, the natural identity that God's given us. And gen the, the genetics are, are part of it in so, so much as they, when I look in the mirror, I see my mom and dad. And I don't only see my mom and dad. I see their moms and dads and their moms and dads and their moms and dads. But I, what people know when they look at me, whose kid I am, right? That's, every kid has that when they're, running around in church or wherever, people know, oh, I know who's, who you belong to. And there's something special about that. That's an identity thing. And that's, and, and, and so that's what I, I would want to, just in, 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 the, in the day and age in which we live where racism is thrown around so much and torched so much, I would just want to be very careful uh, about making that distinction that it's, you know, it is okay to be, to, to like who you are. It, it's, it is. It, it, there's nothing wrong with it. Um, there's nothing wrong with wanting to even marry someone. You know, if you want, someone wants to call me a racist for this, whatever. I'm not, I know I'm not in the sense that racism is hating other, the, the traditional use of the term that I grew up with, um, hating people of, of other uh, races or ethnicities. I'm, I'm not, obviously. And people who know me know that's not true one, one bit. But if someone, whether no matter who they are, wants to marry someone, uh, who is part of their uh, or closer to their ethnic group, and that's the, one of their tastes. I don't see the problem with that. I don't. <laughs> and I think there's beauty in every ethnicity, but I just, I don't, see, I, I'm not, I wouldn't call that like ethnic vainglory. So when it's not defined too well, I, I, I don't know what to say. It's just, um, and, and I think if you read this article, you'll, it, it kind of, it, it's a bit vague. Um, so, Anyway, uh, let's see. Uh, but I mean, he says a lot of good things uh, too. But uh, it's and there's some funny things and stuff. Okay, here's what I'm leading to though. 
yeah, I don't think we're going to read more of this uh, particular article. And again, I, I've said this before. I uh, and he, he brings up Stephen Wolf's book, which is interesting because um, I think I think that's why part of this is happening uh, in part. I think it's to hedge against people who are going after Stephen Wolf's books incessantly on Twitter. Do you think they? Do you think they planned for that? Do you think they expected that? Probably not. I don't know. But, it, I mean, people hate Stephen Wolf's book, and they're calling it all kinds of racism, etc. So, um, so, so maybe this is something that you can point to if you're, if you're in Moscow and you can say, look, we, this is, Doug Wilson posted this. <laughs> we're not that. So, yes, we published Stephen Wolf's book, but we're not what you're saying. That, that probably is an advantage. Okay, so, oh, the Christ is Lord. Someone just pointed out to me, the Christ is Lord handle is Andrew Torba. Okay, well, that makes sense now. I didn't know who that was. So someone actually um, texted me this morning. I should just let you know about this. Okay, someone who uh, is connected to Andrew Torba somehow, I don't know how, but they sent me a screenshot of a, uh, of a conversation between them. And Andrew Torba uh, apparently is saying that he doesn't necessarily agree with those sentiments. He just reposted it because he, it was an interesting thought piece. And, and he... Uh, in fact, I could read it to you if people let, let me just do that. If people are interested, I will read it to you. I have the screenshots. This is what Andrew Torva said about that particular quote. I share stuff that makes people question their assumptions. I added zero affirming or disapproving commentary to the post. I just shared it. It looks like Jesse affirmed it, uh, which it seems is what Doug is attacking saying someone has cotton candy for brains isn't an argument against what the post said the same people who are pushing this stuff in weimar are pushing it here today these are facts facts don't care about feelings nazis were of course not good they were a pagan non-christian reactionary movement that was the response to the jewish bolsheviks pushing the same things they are pushing on us today we want christian nationalism and in particular the gospel to be our response not gnostic esoteric pagan bloodthirsty ethno-nationalism Something is going to fill the neo-reactionary void to this stuff. And so pointing out the parallels between them and then and now is a warning, not an endorsement. Now, here's this is interesting. That's Andrew Torba. Andrew Torba, I, mess, I don't even know how there's a connection here, but someone I know asked Andrew Torba, why did you post that? That's what Andrew Torba said. And it could be that Jesse's saying the same thing. I don't know. I haven't asked Jesse. But this is this was the opportunity to uh, to go after um, maybe low-hanging fruit, and uh, th that would appear to be racist. And so I, I'm. There's too much I'm ignorant on, on in, in the minds of, of people like Jesse to really weigh in much more than this. But I will say that when there, as a rule of thumb, when there's an accusation of racism of any kind, I always give a benefit of the doubt. It's, if I don't have the evidence in front of me, I give the benefit of the doubt because I've lived for the last. Since I've been at Southeastern, well, before that, in Secular Academy, I've, I've been in a situation of constantly hearing accusations about racism. And most of the time, it's a big nothing burger. And so I just want to caution everyone with being careful about this. Okay, here's what I was leading up to. I, a few years ago, actually now it's, well, it was 2016, it's more than a few years ago. There was an individual I met, and I'm not going to say his name, but he um, would have, he said he was basically part of the alt-right kind of a Richard Spencer fan and came to a college career group that I happened to lead a Bible study. And I had the opportunity to lead him to the Lord. And this particular individual, uh, we'll just say had some identity issues, I think. And one of the things that drew him to that 
the same thing that draws people to, I think, to the woke side is, is a fulfillment of identity. We'll tell you who you really are. You're white and you're German or whatever. And you're, and, and taking a, um, something that actually is good and true, but making that everything and, and, and not, you know, taking into account the other things that make you who you are. So anyway, he became a Christian. And then when he had a Christian identity, um, it's not like his, he, now he's not white or all of a sudden he's, he still, he learned, this is what happened. I saw this transformation. He learned to be proud of who he was and not in a way that he hated other people or didn't like other people or wanted to get rid of other people. Or he, he, he learned though, to be, um, happy with who he was in the, uh, with, within the boundaries of what God's ethics, um, uh, taught. And I didn't have to go to him and torch him to do any of that. I didn't have to just, uh, make fun of him or um, I, I just, I treated him like a person and I, and he was, I would say he's a political ally at this point, but it all, but not just that, a brother in Christ. And there was just, it was, it was an experience of this guy was of a, a young man who had been through, especially if you hold beliefs like Richard Spencer's, who had been through social castigation for, for a long time, for years, uh, up through his high school years, maybe even before that. And he was shunned. And it kind of left him isolated. And if I would have torched him like other people did, it would have just made him more ingrained, more bitter, more bunker-like. <laughs> he, he, he wouldn't have, it, it would have just made him crawl into a shell. And, uh, and who knows, those, maybe those are the kind of people that eventually do get violent. I don't know. I don't know where he would have gone. But I didn't do that. And I'm not trying to put my, I know, it sounds like I'm making myself the hero of the story, and I'm not trying to do that. I'm just saying in my own experience, I've just found that it's better to, um, and, I, and this would apply to, S, this would, God resists the proud, gives grace to the humble. So exercise that principle here. This guy was humble. I think that applies to social justice warriors. If they're humble, I think you treat them the same way. I don't think it's different, but they are looking for something. They're looking for an identity. They don't have one, and they're finding it in this this junky place that's just not giving them what they really need. And they're turning to bitterness, and it's 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 unfulfilling. It's it's dumb. It's just that's my assessment. And I have a lot of hope. I think I have a heart for people uh, in those positions because of that experience, in part. And I want to be there um, to to help them. I don't want to tr misunderstand them, torch them, uh, and, and especially you know make fun of them, like questioning their motives and saying you know what's really going on with them is they're jealous of people with better looking wives. That's where I I just I I, uh, I can't guys I can't. So um, I say it with respect, and I've said this before. I. I would say 95% of the things Doug Wilson says about political things, especially, or social things, the vast majority, I would say, that I've read at least, I would say I'm with him. I, I've defended Doug Wilson's <laughs> political views and social views on this podcast probably almost more than anyone else, maybe except John MacArthur. I don't know. I mean, both of them. I've, I mean, I, they tend to get things right on the political social front. Uh, more than 99% of the other elite pastors out there, or pastors with platforms. So um, I say that, I, I say this with a measure of respect, but I definitely, uh, I, I definitely don't understand this one. And we all have bad days. I've had bad days on the podcast. So I would hope that, 
at the end of the day, there might be an apology or a retraction or something. Or if, hey, if I've totally missed the boat, totally missed the boat on this. I don't think I have, but if, you, if I have, I will retract or apologize. So let's see what the comments are saying. Maybe maybe the corrective for me will be in there. But uh, <laughs> um, yeah, we got stuff about Grove City. Yeah, Grove City loses either way. Uh, yeah, they probably do. Um, thanks. Sky Jathani said a while ago that no one there had a spine because according to him, they gave so much ground to conservatives. Really? Are you serious? That shows where the Phil Vischer uh, crowd is. My goodness. Like, no, I would say the I'd say the other way around. They've conceded to the left. Um, th remember, this is a, a this is a college that is is conservative. That's the default setting. That's how they started. They don't take federal money, and yet they're having these problems with critical theory. It's weird. Uh, Patrick wrote a competing book, and Wolf's book was doing better. <laughs> Sounds like sour grapes to me. Yeah, maybe. Kanye is right though. Kanye is right about what? What is Kanye right about? I, um, John, uh, the Christ is Lord handles. Oh yeah. And I already read that. Okay. Oh man. There's so many people, uh, I'm trying to get through, get to the comments and questions. Here's a question on this subject. Would you agree with Doug Wilson that the South's moral position pre-civil war is indefensible or is it too complicated to answer? Wait, hold on. What Doug Wilson says that the South's moral position pre-civil war is indefensible. Where in the world does Doug Wilson say that? I thought Doug Wilson, I've, I've read stuff that Doug Wilson said about, I'm pretty sure he doesn't say that, but it, maybe he's changed his position. I didn't think so. I really did not think, I think you might be reading Doug Wilson wrong or else I'm just not updated. Um, I mean, I don't know. I, that's, that's too general of a question. It, it's too hard for me to answer that. Uh, I would love to engage on that in another podcast, perhaps. Um, if you're talking about like their constitutional interpretation of whether states can secede or not. No, I think, I think from the beginning, I, I believe, and they call it compact theory. I think it's just compact fact. I, I believe in that. I, I totally believe that the founding generation would not have conceived of the United States being the Hotel California. Uh, I mean, they, I mean, even some of the states in the ratification papers, like New York did this. There's three states that did it, I think. Um, Virginia did it. They basically said, we can leave. <laughs> so it, it wasn't something that even needed to be uh, enumerated because the 10th amendment says the powers reserved uh, powers are reserved to the states that aren't given to the um, federal government, the national government, common general government. So uh, secession would be part of that. I mean, I could go on and on about this, but I, I don't want to bore everyone. I, so I, I think that particular on that issue, I mean, New England tried to do it or attempted to consider doing it with the Hartford convention. So, yeah, I mean, I think that that position, that political position, I would say rock solid. Um, we should be thinking about that more with uh, what's going on politically out there. Uh, I'm shielding my eyes from what's happening with Carrie Lake in Arizona. I can't take it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. So for people, it is no quarter of November also. He specifically avoided any kind of qualifying language. Okay. Well, <laughs> I, I, I don't know all the rules on all this stuff. I know you burn couches for no quarter of November. I mean, I, I remember the first no quarter of November and uh, it was, I didn't quite get the rules. So I was like, okay, so you're not I'm like, don't you usually write without qualification, but it's even more so. Yeah. But that's, I still have to like take the words to what they mean in English. You, you, I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't get, I don't get it. I'm more, see if people read my stuff. It's much more, uh, just 
it's less stream of consciousness. It tends to be and more here are the facts. I do stream of consciousness on the podcast, but I think Doug tends to write Pastor Wilson, I'll say tends to write more stream of consciousness. And uh, it, there's a certain art to it is like that it, it can you can literally laugh through like one of his articles sometimes because he's making all these descriptions and just references that you weren't expecting. Uh, I don't know if I could do that. That would be very, I, it'd take me a long time to construct something like that. And he probably just whips it out. So good for him on that. But I, I do think English, when you're writing in English, you still have to just uh, take into account if you're writing to a particular audience. Like I'm speaking to you right now. And I know in general what my audience is thinking. At least I know from doing this over time, experience has taught me who listens and I take that into account when I say what I'm saying. So I do make qualifications. Sometimes I don't, I don't though, because I know who's listening and I know I don't have to. So it's, it takes wisdom. There's no doubt about it. It takes wisdom. <laughs> White boy summer is unstoppable. I don't know. It's pretty cold where I am. I don't know. I'm pretty sure it stopped. Uh, <laughs> let's see. Wilson attack white boy summer during winter. What would you, <laughs> what would you call a person that hunts and kills a bear during hibernation? <laughs> Never mind. I'm just saying this week. That's right. All the white boy summer people went home. Doug calling the faithful fathers of uh, families in. Yeah, I know. I know. There's some people getting on about Doug Wilson. Look, I don't. I'm not meaning to stir up hate against him because of this at all, man. And I. <laughs> If I was a, someone doing political calculations, I never would have said anything because I'm probably shutting myself off to anyone in that orbit, perhaps anyone who's loyal to uh, to Wilson's probably going to be upset. But um, it's not it's not personal. Again, I would I would welcome criticism of myself if I did something like this. I really do believe uh, we should treat others the way we want to be treated. And I would totally want someone to if I did something publicly like this. um I would I would not mind at all if someone came after me and, and gave me that opportunity to think through it and say you know what maybe I should have phrased that differently I'm gonna retract or apologize or whatever so this wasn't a private thing it was a public thing so um, all right so we're gonna end it I think there <laughs> I'm uncomfortable with this podcast it went in a lot of different directions but uh, hopefully it was helpful for you guys we touched a lot of different issues today and I'm gonna come up with some things um, I am working on some things for later in the week that are gonna be I think a lot more contained less uh what this is less long form conversation more of uh some some presentations so look forward to that um we'll see what happens it's hunting season this week too and i'm speaking oh i'm speaking ha almost forgot all right last thing but not least if you live around the albany area of new york state then i would love for you i'd love to see you uh this particular saturday and the website's not loading <laughs> It's loading slow. I'm going to be speaking. Uh, where? Where am I going to be speaking? There it is. Schenectady, New York. November 18th. Calvary OPC. Orthodox President. The Presbyterians are letting me come in and speak about social justice. 6.30 p.m. I'll see you there. You can RSVP at Calvary Conference at Outlook.com. God bless.
You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. 